I'm Paul Levinson, and welcome to episode 88, Light On, Light Through, in which I'll be reading Unburning Alexandria, or at least reading an excerpt of it, and I hope you enjoy it. Now, this reading was originally done in 2012 at the late and lamented Robbins Bookstore in Philadelphia. It was still open then when I did the reading. And after the reading, you all hear Oz Fontecchio interview me about unburning Alexandria. So here's the reading. Enjoy. The Light on Light Through podcast. Live at Robbins is pleased to present Philadelphia Fantastics and Paul Levinson. As always, Philadelphia Fantastics, they're home here at Robbins. A wonderful evening. We appreciate the exploration of this field. Let me just say a few words about the relationship of Unburning Alexandria to the plot to save Socrates. As many of you know, uh, both here uh, in Robin's bookstore and uh, listening on the web, the editor of my books at Tor is someone who I think is the best editor far and away in science fiction, David Hartwell. And I've always loved working with him as an editor. But uh, as is uh, the case in many situations, and many authors will tell you, you don't always agree with everything your editor may suggest. And in fact, usually when that happens, you know, you work it out, this and that. Well, one of the things that David and I disagreed with about the plot to save Socrates is the novel originally had an additional chapter in it. And David felt strongly that the novel should end where it ends, and that additional chapter could be the basis of a new novel. And in fact, uh, it is the basis of Unburning Alexandria. But what you are going to hear tonight is what, for the most part, was written at the same time I wrote the novel, The Plot to Save Socrates. But wasn't published as the last chapter there, and instead is uh, the first chapter of Unburning Alexandria. Now, I know that, um, much as I hate to admit it, that there are probably many people out there, certainly in the world, uh, and no doubt in the audience, who haven't read The Plot to Save Socrates. I don't care. No, I, I always care about my potential readers because they're so few. You know, I want to keep them as happy as possible. But um, what I will read to you, for the most part, won't spoil most of the uh, exciting mysteries in the plot to save Socrates. I mean, it'll be, it'll be clear that one of the main characters survived, but other than that, not much else will be clear. So, uh, let me take my glasses off, because I always do when I read, since I can't see uh, without them. And let me begin with Unburning Alexandria, Part 1, Alexandria, 413 A.D. Sierra walked quickly past the library in Alexandria, her sandals slapping on stones. No clocks were on its wall, but if there had been an hour hand and a minute hand, an alabaster or some other white mineral that matched the walls, Sierra knew the minute would be pressing the hour, and that hour would be twelve. The library was at its end. Hypatia, she turned around. 
Synesius, an unexpected pleasure. You should have sent word. Ptolemaeus to Alexandria is a long way to travel for a surprise visit. Sierra knew Synesius was desperately in love with her. She was in love with no one likely alive in this world. The winds were kind, Synesius said. I boarded the ship four mornings ago, and here I am. The sun had just set behind him. Synesius was about the same age as Sierra. He would have been about ten years younger than the original Hypatia. He had been Sierra's student for an intense year, shortly after she had first replaced Hypatia, who had died of a swift fever. Today, Synesius looked older than both of them put together. Dark pouches anchored his eyes. Deep creases mapped his forehead. What is wrong? she asked him. People of my faith are angrier than ever about you and your pagans. I am concerned about your safety, Synesius answered. Sierra scoffed. Why, if you have such confidence that yours is the one true inevitable faith, do you have such anger toward others? Surely, if your faith is right, all others, including mine, will fade of their own accord. Not all of us want to kill you. Synesius replied, I certainly do not. He blushed slightly. Most of us indeed believe that in time the whole world will become Christian, but there are fanatics among us, Nitrian young men, who see their mission as cleansing the world of all impurities immediately, including the purveyors of impure thoughts. Your beauty and your intelligence make you the most dangerous purveyor of all. They burn with hatred. I've seen it. Sierra turned from Synesius and the colors behind him and looked again at the library. It was bronze and dignified in this light. My father did his best to stave off the bloodshed, to contest with ideas, not knives, but he lost the battle. Sierra was talking about Theon, Hypatia's, not her, biological father. Theon had succumbed to the same fever as the original Hypatia, which had cut short Sierra's attempt to locate the cure for Socrates' illness. But when Hypatia's death was imminent, Sierra had taken some of Hypatia's DNA, traveled to Athens and the future, and had reconstructed her own face so that she looked like Hypatia. Sierra returned and took Hypatia's place. For the Alexandrian world of 410 A.D. and all subsequent history, Hypatia had recovered. If she looked a little different, if she sounded a little odd, if her voice was off, that was ascribed to grief over the loss of her father and her own close encounter with death. Unfortunately, that same history had Hypatia dying by vicious assassination in 415 A.D. But that was nearly two years away. Sierra had crucial work to do, but no intention of staying in Alexandria that long. But what then was the cause of this visit from Synesius today? Some translucent danger that her reading of history had not disclosed? 
Your father was a wise man, as you, his daughter, are wise, Synesius said. Indeed, you are wiser still. You have an understanding, a perspective that speaks of centuries, not just years. Thank you, Sierra replied. A high compliment from the bishop of Ptolemaeus. Yes, Synesius said, a compliment, but a warning too. In return for your wisdom, the awe you evoke in people, you court death from the Christian fanatics. What would you have me do? Sierra said. Leave with me, Synesius said. Come with me to Ptolemaeus. There is nothing here for you now, just scrolls and memories. You can take the memories with you. And as you know, the scrolls are dwindling. But I am devoted to saving them and to stemming the exodus of scholars from Alexandria, Sierra said. And finding the cure for Socrates, if it exists, she thought. She had deliberately come back here near the end of Theon's life in case he had not learned about the cure until his last years. But she had not counted on Hypatia dying at the same time, and now she was obliged to pursue this phantom cure without their assistance. Come with me, Synesius repeated. You will be safe in Ptolemais. Under my protection, I will care for you. Sierra reminded herself that, in this day and age, bishops were not celibate. No, she said, the library requires and deserves my attention. But it wasn't just Synesius' desire that she wished to avoid, or the dwindling holdings of the Alexandrian library that she yearned to protect, or the possible cure for Socrates that she wanted to find. Alcibiades was long overdue in Alexandria. Very well, Synesius lowered his head in acceptance of Sierra's decision. I will spend the night with my brothers at quarters generously provided by Marcellinus and leave for Ptolemaeus in the morning. Marcellinus of Carthage? Your importance has grown since the last time we met. That makes me happy, Sierra said. Marcellinus was not only proconsul of Africa, but speaker for the emperor himself. But Sierra knew that Honorius ruled now only over half an empire, and it was the weaker, crumbling half at that. If only my importance were enough to convince you, Synesius reached into his robe and extracted a small bundle of scrolls. These were recently recovered in a house that the Nitrian fanatics set on fire. They were written by your father. Sierra looked up at the pastel ceiling of her bedroom in the library later that night and shook her head slowly. But if Alcibiades was coming here, why wasn't he here already? Where was he? She asked herself this question every night as she lay tossing and turning and waiting for sleep. She could put it out of her mind, barely, sometimes, during the day, but not in the night. She looked at the little digi locket she had picked up in the future and now kept by her bed. It was a painting by Jean-Baptiste Renault from 1785 entitled, Socrates Dragging Alcibiades from the Embrace of sensual pleasure. 
the stern Socrates in the painting dragged a young, fair-haired man from a blonde woman. Nothing about the picture was right. Socrates, of course, looked nothing like Socrates. Alcibiades bore no resemblance to the real man, and Sierra, in all of her disguises, had never been a blonde. But someone, something, had dragged Alcibiades away from her. Was he waiting for the time closest to her advertised death, the time of Hypatia's murder as recorded in history, 415 A.D., so that he could show up at the last minute and be sure that she, Sierra, playing Hypatia, was here? That would be a very dangerous game. But Sierra was playing it too, attracted like some fluttering insect to this hot Venus flytrap of a place and time. For what? For whom? For Alcibiades? Yes. For finding the elusive cure for Socrates, if it ever existed, even though Theon, its reported author, was reportedly gone? Yes. Even though the Biblia Senecius had given her had proved to be another dead containing nothing new, at least on her first heart-pounding reading. Sierra thought about those scrolls, and then about the scrolls still left in this library. She picked up a scroll she had left near the side of her bed. It was by Alcman of Sardis, a 7th century B.C. Spartan. He and his poetry were known in her future age, but this work was not. It would not survive the final destruction of the library by the Caliph Omar some 200 years from this past. But Alcman and his world of potential readers were the lucky ones. At least some of his work had endured. But most of the books that survived into the age of the West and the printing press, the world of Gutenberg in the 1450s and the mass copies it would produce, they were home free. Certainly everything that had made it into her digital age in the 21st century would likely be available to please and inform and infuriate readers for as long as there were humans on Earth and other planets. Those texts were okay. But what of those ancient authors whose very names became soot in the burnings of Alexandria? Sierra had encountered many of their scrolls back here. She thought of another poem, Thomas Gray's Elegy, written in a country churchyard from the 1700s. She thought of its paean to the mute, inglorious Miltons, who were buried in that graveyard, great poets and thinkers whose works had never made it to the light of day or publication. Sierra wondered how many mute, inglorious Homers and Plato's resided in the halls outside of her room, not mute and unknown now, but soon and irrevocably to be. No, nothing, nothing was irrevocable when it comes to time travel. One of the uh...
critiques I've often made myself about science fiction on television is it by and large does not take seriously time travel paradoxes. Now, even shows like Journeyman, which actually I was very fond of, it was a time travel show on in the fall, I guess, of uh, 2007. Short-lived. Short-lived show. And there, by the way, it was a married couple, and it did deal to some extent with the problems, but, but when Dan Vassar, the lead character, went to the past and he was, you know, gone for a period of time, whenever he came back, that same amount of time had elapsed in the future, which, if you think about it, makes no sense. Um, because, you know, the future just goes on. I mean, it's, it's like a very cruel, odd kind of time travel system that makes you be gone for that period of time. Why not put you back right, you know, after so no one even misses you? Um, the paradoxes of time travel. And, you know, I'm sure, you know, most of the people who are watching this have heard of them. You know, the, the grandfather paradox. Uh, if a time traveler goes back in time and, you know, there's a sort of violent version and kills his grandfather, well, then uh, he's not going to have uh, any children, therefore no grandchildren, so how the time traveler traveled back in the first place. You can have a non-violent, you know, peaceful thing. You don't have to kill your poor grandfather. You can just basically, your grandfather's crossing the street and you sort of start a conversation with him so he never gets to meet your grandmother, who is this beautiful babe waiting two blocks later. So how did you yeah. do it? And you don't, by the way, need to be sexist. It can be the grandmother paradox. Yeah. Um, but there's almost no attention paid to these kinds of paradoxes. And I'll give you another example, one of my favorite paradoxes, the sort of where did the time traveler come from, right? There's like a young guy working in his lab late at night. There's a knock on the door. He opens the door, and who's there but a very familiar-looking, much older oh, yeah. person. And this older person is, has come to tell him, you know, you've got to correct your equations and Just do, like that. Yeah, do this and do that, and basically uh, coaxes him and walks him through inventing a time travel process. And, of course, it turns out that the older person is this guy himself, much older. And he's able to travel back and tell his younger self how to invent... Standard OT. Yeah. Uh, but, so where did this guy come from? Right. Um, I think science fiction is the most exciting form of writing ever invented uh, for this reason. Because it not only deals with human relationships, which other kinds of writing deals with, because it not only deals with life and death, which other kinds of mystery and detective stories deal with, but it also deals with the very fabric of the universe. I mean, think about it. If, if someone could go back in time and again, not just on a superficial level, but do something that changes the future. That would be the most extraordinary thing that ever happened in human history. And it's science fiction that deals with that. I think maybe at this point, uh, uh, Paul, we should uh, turn it over if there are any sure. questions from the audience. Absolutely. Uh, it's really an exciting project. I'm looking Thank forward you. to it. Thank you. It's fun talking to you about it. Yes. I'm just curious to um, find out that did you really believe there's technology out there that can well, that we don't know. They can time travel through or... I'm, I'm glad you asked that question because I'm going to be honest with you and tell you the truth, okay? This will probably ruin the project, but I always answer my, you know, readers honestly. I don't think time travel is possible because I think it would just unravel the universe. I mean, you know, the grandfather paradox, 
indeed. Or, you know, the, the, where did the time travel from the future come from? Right, it makes no sense. You know, whenever you really get into time travel, there were always these loops. Uh, it's almost the root canal work of the mind. You know, th these paradoxes, you just can't make any more sense out of it. It's almost the equivalent of the paradox of the liar. What I'm saying now is a lie. Well, is that true? Well, if it's true, it's a lie. Well, then it's a lie. Well, then maybe we're, I just said what I'm saying now is lies. So that's true. And you just go round and round. But that's why I think it's such a great form of fiction, time travel, precisely because it's impossible. In fact, to me, you know, I've written space travel stories, too. And my second novel, Borrowed Tides, is for the most part a space travel story. But actually, there's a little time travel in there as well. Space travel is great. But there's nothing paradoxical about space travel. It's just doing faster, better what we already do here when you get in a plane. Time travel gets at the very root of our understanding reality. So, no, as a matter of fact, I don't think so. I think totally impossible, but nonetheless believable. <laughs> yes, Jerry. Uh, in reading the plot to save Socrates, where uh, characters are traveling through various different time uh, situations, uh, uh, my head was spinning in, in, in trying to figure out who was who uh, uh, and, and where they were and when they were. Uh, uh, I wonder how you were able to keep track of it as you were writing those different chapters. Well, the thing that first comes to mind is Robert Browning, the Victorian poet's famous uh, interview after he had published some poem and some reporter for the London Times before Rupert Murdoch took it over about 100 years before that, said, uh, uh, Mr. Browning, could you please tell me exactly what you meant in that you know, passage in the poem? Browning thinks for a second, says, well, truthfully, uh, when I wrote it, only two beings exist, I understood it, I and the deity. And now I'm afraid only one being understands, <laughs> and he's not standing before you now. So uh, you, the truth of the matter is, I got a little dizzy writing uh, the plot to save Socrates. And what did you think of the movie Frequency, the way they handled time travel there? I love Frequency. I thought that was one of the best movies. There are two, mo there are three movies actually that I think that and. I said, you know, time travel as you've never seen it on television. I think that motion pictures have done a much better job. And Frequency is one of them. I thought it was wonderful. It did take the paradoxes seriously. It showed people changing, you know, getting that, you know, he does something in the past and it changes brilliantly. Twelve Monkeys is a masterpiece. Oh, I highly recommend it. That's probably about the most complex movie you'll see. I, I, years ago, when I first rented it in the video store, someone advised me not. He said, it's way too complicated. I lost it. I said, okay, great. I'm definitely going to rent it now. I'll keep it out longer. And then the third movie is Deja Vu, which I don't think receives enough credit. I mean, you know, Denzel Washington was in it. He, he gave a great performance. But that, you know, it... it uh, it doesn't really do time travel until the second half of the movie. And, you know, the, the, the twist happens very quickly at the end, but I think that that, that movie does a, a, a really good job, uh, you know, of, of respecting the paradoxes. Yeah. That, that's my slogan, respect the paradox. Right. Yeah, yeah. I thought Frequency was one of the best science fiction movies I've seen. Very small scale, but really neat. I agree. I agree. Yeah, I highly recommend it for everyone, to everyone. It's basically someone whose uh, radio, uh, it, you know, suddenly gets, you know, connected, his ham radio suddenly gets connected uh, to his father, whenever it was 20 or 30 years earlier, uh, who happens to be a fireman. There are all kinds of exciting things going on in the movies. It's done very, very well.
Thanks, Paul. Hey, thank you. The Light on Light Through podcast. Well, I hope you enjoyed that reading from Unburning Alexandria. You can find out more about that novel. It's the second novel in the Sierra Waters time travel trilogy, which begins with the plot to save Socrates. You'll find out more about that whole trilogy in the show notes to this episode of Light On, Light Through. Just search on that and you'll find it on the webpage. And I'll be back here soon with another episode of Light On, Light Through. In the meantime, enjoy. Athens, 2042 AD. She ripped the paper in half, then ripped the halves, then ripped what was left again into bits and pieces of history that could have been. Sierra Waters had read once that, years ago, it was thought that men made love for the thrill, while women made love for the sense of connection it gave them. Curled up with a good book says, Sierra Waters is sexy as hell. You can find out more about The Plot to Save Socrates by Paul Levinson at theplottosavesocrates.com. Paul Levinson spilled code about an ancient biotech war raging on in secret for centuries.